Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, welcome back to the show. This particular interview is an interesting piece, whereas it was done about a year and a half ago through uh, the company called StoryCorps and their One Small Step program. And what that basically is, is a, is a show where they pair you up with people who on the surface you may not agree with. So trying to see the humanity in each other and trying to get people to talk to each other again on a national level. And it's a phenomenal program. So I signed up and they paired me up with a woman from Bowie, Maryland named Jeremy Fortune. And she's a a younger black woman, Democrat. And at the time, I was probably a screaming Republican. And I'm very white. And so on the surface, it may appear that we wouldn't get along uh, on the street and may not have ever got a chance to meet each other or get to know each other. So this interview is done with a moderator through the show. And my apologies for the the audio about halfway through. She kept getting cut off, so we had to do it through um, her cell phone. But our moderator was Leah Zickmund, whom I have actually sub- subsequently had on as a guest on my show about a book she recently published. And then Jeremy will be coming back on the show later in the month uh, to just give an update since we've talked a year and a half ago on her life and some of the cool things she has been doing. So enjoy the show. So my first question that I wanted to ask you both is if you can just share with each other what led you to be interested in having this interview today. Go ahead, Jeremy. Uh Thank you. So I would say um, I was interested in having this interview today just because with the pandemic and everything that's going on, it's been really hard to have conversations. And I think um, just with everything that's going on in the world, it's been harder to have conversations with people, A, that you don't know, and then two, that um, have different beliefs. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity to um, have conversation and to preserve the art of conversation and to learn more about someone that I didn't know and because I love storytelling, I thought it would be a great way to do that. Um, similar, similar reasons for me, you know, I think even prior to the pandemic, we were, we'd been slowly forgetting how to communicate and talk, especially since the advent of social media, we don't communicate anymore. We just yell at each other, it seems like. And so I love to talk to people that I, that I, again, on the surface level may not agree with on anything because it helps me learn. It gets me out of my comfort zone because talking to people I agree with all the time is preaching to the choir and that's kind of boring. And I think if, if we all would just try to understand people where they come from, why they have the beliefs they do, because it's easy to just put them in an, in a box because, Oh, you're, you're, you believe this. So you're in that box. And now I understand you better, which in all reality, we don't understand people better when we do that. So this is an awesome opportunity to, you know, I can set set an example for others that, you know, that they can do this and not, you know, want to destroy each other. Thank you both. Um, so the next thing I was hoping you could do, um, you both submitted a short biography about yourself um, in the chat. And if you don't mind just reading your your partner's bio out loud. Um, and then you can do it right in a row if you want to. Um, but then feel free to follow up with any questions you have about what was in each other's bios or just, um, you know, could you expand on this part, et cetera. Okay. Um, so uh, my partner is Brian. He is a 52 year old male. He's been married for 22 years to a British wife. He has four children, uh, their ages 25 to 15 three daughters and one son. He's from a very small town of around 100 people in North California called Old Station. Uh, he moved to, a U- to Utah in 1987 to attend Utah State University. 
He then moved to Fort Collins, Colorado in 1993 to finish college at Colorado State University. He graduated with a BFA in graphic design in 1995, and he met his wife in Palm Desert, California in 1998, and then moved back to Utah in 2005 to raise his family. Hi, my partner is Jeremy. I love your name, by the way. That's very cool. <laughs> um, and she says, uh, I believe in equality for all people and decreasing the wealth and opportunity gaps for women and minorities of all backgrounds. I work with C-suite execs during the week and spend my weekend serving at my local church, performing, reading, and catching on the latest podcast, blogs, and Netflix series. My perspective on everything has been drastically changed since 2015 when I attempted suicide and subse subsequently started my healing and recovering journey. And that's where I want to hone in on, <laughs> if you're willing. Sure. That's that's fascinating. I want to, you know, go down that rabbit, not rabbit hole, but, you know. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I would say uh, 2015 um, was uh, two years after I graduated from college. And um, during that time from probably 2010 until 2015, I had started having these series of conversations with my father. And my parents got divorced when I was 15. And I felt like it wasn't until um, my parents got divorced that I realized that the relationship that I had with my parents and our family wasn't exactly the relationship that I saw in other people's homes. And so I noticed that um, I had friends who just were closer with their dads, or I had some friends who didn't even know their fathers, but, or he maybe didn't live in the same state, but they yeah. still had conversations. They still had a relationship. And I began to realize that my dad and I didn't really have a real relationship. Um, I would say it was more kind of formality. And so in 2010, um, I just felt this kind of stirring to start having these conversations um, with him about just how I felt and um, kind of, I think, divorce uh, seemed to be the thing that kind of ripped the seams in our relationship to kind of expose that there wasn't much there. So um, I would go to friends' houses and just notice how, I don't know, they just kind of looked a little bit happier. <laughs> the, the dad seems to be kind of involved in the conversations and even in the different things that, that um, their children would do. And though, you know, I had a feeling that, of course, my dad loved me. I just felt like our relationship just didn't look like that. And so um, I began having these really tough conversations with him. I, of course, didn't in my mind know at that time that it would be kind of five major conversations over the course of about four or five years. But kind of each year I came home from school, we'd have these conversations and I call them conversations. They were more like arguments, more like yelling matches. Uh, but at the time, I that was the only way I could kind of get what I felt out. And so we would, something would kind of trigger Maybe uh, my brother would call me and he'd be talking about maybe money or he'd be talking about something that he needed and how, um, you know, our dad just didn't have it or he never did it. And I would be in the car with my father. And that's kind of how I had the first conversation. And um, he was like, what's wrong with you? And I tried to at, at first, I actually didn't say anything because I didn't want to say to him, you know, your son is mad that you're not present in our lives and that you didn't choose to stay. And so I just said, nothing's wrong. And that kind of started our first conversation or, or first argument about um, just my feelings and how um, I, I kind of just started with the divorce and how I felt like um, he didn't really fight for his family. And he didn't really I guess, show the amount of effort that I wish he had shown to preserve, you know, what we kind of had left um, prior to going to college and, and or I should say even prior going to or graduating from high school, um, we had lived in different people's houses for about seven years. And um, we didn't end up actually moving into a house of our own until after my uh, parents got separated. And so just this whole idea of always being in transition was something I always felt, never feeling like there was where home was. <laughs> I just kind of felt like, you know, you, you make home whatever home is with the people you're around. But 
just having this this feeling like I'm always moving, I'm always in transition and not really knowing my place and especially not knowing my place um, in, in that particular relationship. And so the first conversation, the gist of it was, this is all your fault. <laughs> that was pretty much the, the gist of the conversation. But by the time we got to the third conversation, um, it escalated in a way where I didn't really know how to deal with the the feelings and emotions I was experiencing at that time. Yeah, and so we, we kind of had this conversation in 2015, and um, I felt like what I was trying to say for so many years, I, I finally said um, to my dad, and after that, um, actually, again, we're still angry, we're still yelling, and um, I got out of his car, and I remember going into the house, and um, they, nobody was home but me at that time. I was living with my, my brother and my mom and my other brother. And I just remember feeling this feeling of like a mixture of relief and terror because I felt relief because I feel like, you know, I've been holding on to this feeling and I've finally been able to verbalize it to the person I need to verbalize it to. Now what? And And that was the terror, like, well, you feel like you've been waiting, you know, your your whole short but adult life that far to be able to say what you need to say to the person you need to say it to. It was just kind of like, now what do I do? <laughs> and that's kind of where those thoughts of, I don't know, um, started to come into play. And I had never really thought about suicide before that point. I didn't know anybody who really dealt with any mental health issues. I I had never been to therapy, never thought about it. It was never brought up in our household. And so in that moment, um, all I could think was, well, I've done what I I needed to do. There's nothing else for me to do. Um, And that's when um, the suicide attempt happened. And I was in the middle of it, and the only reason I stopped, it was it was such a ridiculous reason, was because um, I had a cousin who was coming, and that was our night where we went to this kind of a thrift store in the area and kind of looked around, and we would hang out and, and go out to eat. It was kind of like our, our cousin hangout day, and my only thought was, I don't want her to have the satisfaction of saying I was late. <laughs> as crazy as that was, I, I was looking for any kind of reason at that time. I, was, I wanted God to speak to me. I wanted him to say something verbally, that I, audibly, that I could hear, and I didn't hear any of that. But that one thought, because she, she texted me and she said, I'm almost there. And I, I've, tar- I've tried to have this conversation with her about the impact of that text, and I think the first time I said it to her, she was kind of shaken emotionally about everything that was happening around it. But I literally, you know, stopped um, in the middle of the process just because she texted me to say that I'm on the way, and I didn't want to leave her waiting and her not know that, you know, inside I, I may not have been there anymore. So that kind of stopped it, but... Um, yeah, from that point on, it was just this moment um, where it seemed like everything was different after that. There was probably about another 30 days of just feeling this kind of dark cloud that was kind of following me wherever I went. And I, when I got back home, I called a friend who, she was the only person I'd ever heard talk about being depressed. Um, and she was a little bit older, so she at the time I was probably uh, 24, and she was 30, 35. And so she, I, I called her and I told her what happened, and she just said, "Do you still have those thoughts?" And I said, um, "No, I, I don't really have those thoughts, but I, I just feel um, I don't feel safe with myself, if that makes sense. I don't feel I don't really want to be alone because I, I can't say that those thoughts won't come back again." And so she actually, um, she of course told me about the the one eight hundred hotline that I, that I could call or that if I, I really needed help that you know she was going to call nine one one and she felt like she needed to and I had to be okay with that and so um, but what she did also was that she um, recommended that there's a particular um, Bible 
chapter in Psalms, <clears throat> Psalms 27, and she just recommended that I just read it, and um, that if, she, if I needed anything from her or if I, I had those feelings come back, that she would come and sit with me. But at that time, people started coming home. My mom started coming home. My brothers were coming home, and I didn't want to talk about it anymore out loud. So that kind of ended that conversation. But that kind of started the journey that I've been on since then of just really understanding myself, understanding what I was really um, going through in that at that time, and um, also just what the, the road to healing and recovery would look like. And how is your relationship with your dad now? Um, I would say that it is probably 80% better. Um, each time we had one of those conversations, we would also have a subsequent two to three months of not talking at all. Um, and I, I think what was beginning to happen was this was just the first real communication we were having, period. And so it took some time for us both to adjust to, A, you know, you're talking to me out more so than, you know, how you doing, good, you know, talk to you later. That was kind of our conversation before. So we were beginning to have conversations, and I think anytime you talk about feelings, it can get a little risky. And so um, we would have these subsequent months of silence where we wouldn't speak and then for whatever reason we would have to re-engage again over something trivial like I need a ride somewhere or um, I need this, I need that. So now I would say that our relationship is better than it's ever been in terms of um, its history. Um, we don't talk every single day um, and it's not I guess the ideal relationship I'd like but it is better. Um, we talk a few times a week. I spent my first holiday um, with him probably since um, being 10, uh, so probably 20 years. Uh, my first holiday with him where I spent the night at his house and we cooked together and we, um, yeah, we, we spent Christmas together and, during the pandemic. So. That was the first time I'd done that in probably about 20 years, and um, it was it was a good feeling. And so again, we're not we don't talk every day. We're not super super close, but we're closer than we ever were. And I've kind of accepted that this may be as far as it gets, and that um, our relationship may just be like this, you know, for for the rest of of the time that we both have. And I've forgiven him for what he didn't know to do or, you know, what he didn't understand. And um, I learned in my healing process, I learned um, just about um, the, the development of men and how ages 13 and 14 are very pivotal years in their growth and development. And that's when my dad's father um, actually passed away. So just having that background information of how, you know, a man, be, uh, a boy becomes a man, and not having that important figure there to kind of guide him and give him direction on what fatherhood should be, kind of tells me a lot, you know, about just his relational capacity. So, you know, I, funny, you mentioned <clears throat> you mentioned something. You said this may be all I get, and I think that is a healthy realization. That when when we look, it's easy to idolize and idealize our parents. Because their parents are supposed to know everything. They're supposed to be our heroes. And the older we get, if we, I think it's the faster we realize that they're, they're just humans trying to get through this life the same way we are. And they have their issues. And we, we tend to think, oh, parents don't have issues, but they do. My dad, I think my dad has Asperger's. Uh, it's not diagnosed, but I think he has it just based on, you know, what I've seen about Asperger's. And he, for 15 years, there's five of us and all of us were kind of frustrated with him because he just never would put our families first. He never would spend time with us or ask us about how we were doing. And so I was angry for a long time. And the moment I realized that I think he has this, it was like, it was, this weight was just lifted because I've had to come to the grips with that's all I'm going to get. I call him every week. I haven't seen him in person in three years, but I call him every week mm -hmm. and just take what I can from him because he's not going to be 
the dad that I wanted or the ideal dad. And I've had to become what I didn't have to my kids. That's, that's, I think that's how you, you have two chances with the parent child relationship. Once when you're a kid, once when you're a parent uh, to do that. Yeah. No, I I love that, that, that idea that, yeah, you have two chances and, and you make a decision about, you know, what that's going to be when you're an adult. But I did have a question. Um, So for, so you've been married for 22 years. So you were 30 when you met your wife, correct? Yes. So um, what was, where'd you meet her? Like, how'd you, I guess, how'd you meet your wife? You said she's British. Um, she how, what was, was the story there? She was living here in the state. She came uh, to Brigham Young University when she was 18 and or 19. And then she just happened to be moving or living in Southern California after her divorce. And I literally met her in church, as boring as that sounds, met her in church. And so, um, and she didn't win the parent lottery either. Um, she just had a, she had a rough, rough go of it with her. She had no father at all, still has no father. Um, and her mother was mentally abusive and passed away right before we got married. So both of us have tried to become or be what we didn't have in, in the parent situation. And you do the best you can with it. Tell me, tell me, tell me about your, you know, since all that, because suicide is a whole different animal. And I've, I can't imagine the pain you must have been going through to think that that was a good option. So tell me how your, how's that recovery been? Yeah, so it, it was a slow walk at first. I, um, at the time, I would say maybe, Maybe a few months later, four or five months later, it just so happened that um, I, my pastor at the time started this series, and it was about mental health, and it was about how, for him, as at that time, he was probably in his late 40s, um, and as a black man, mental health was not something that was talked about often, and it was also, you know, it was it was given kind of this bad perception that only crazy people have to go to therapy or go to psychiatrists, you know, and that kind of, just that kind of perception um, in, in communities of color. And so um, he began the series just kind of debunking the myths about mental health and about, you know, just the idea that you don't have to be depressed or you don't have to kind of live in this place where you're the only one who knows what's going on inside of your head emotionally and you have to figure out how to process all of that by yourself. And I think it just spoke to what I had went through where when I talked about it maybe three or four years later with a therapist, she was saying that I didn't at that time, um, I didn't have the tools and a kind of a process or a roadmap to um, deal with the aftermath of having a conversation like that and then kind of going back to regular life. And so we kind of talk through how when we don't have the right tools and resources to figure out, you know, what's the next step now, we can begin to think that um, kind of similar to um, after a woman has a baby and there's some women who go through postpartum depression, it's because it feels like you've had this big life event, now what, you know? So um, that process for me looked like um, going to different therapists. I started a year later. I went to therapy, and I never told anybody why I was going. Um, I just said I, I wanted to go um, and just try it. And so I would kind of use uh, my pastor's sermon as a excuse to my parents as to why I wanted to go. I'm like, oh, I think it's great. You know, it's great for everybody. I need to go. But I knew that I was going because I knew I needed to go. Um, and I just, again, wanted to make sure that I never got back to that place again. And so um, my first experience was not great. I um, went through my insurance, found this lady, and I felt like our, in our first session, she just piled so much on me that I, I didn't know what to do with it. She pretty much told me that I was probably depressed from my depression stem, probably from being a child, and that I was had this severe, and she kind of diagnosed me with severe depression at the time. And... Um, but it was going to be okay because we were going to do all these things and I, I would 
be a much lighter and happier person by the end of it. And she gave me all these books and all these things I needed to do and, and, and all this homework. And at the time, I was in, a, uh, in my MBA program, so I wasn't looking for more homework, to say the least, while I was working. So um, wasn't the best experience, and then she was really hard to get in contact with, really hard to get on her schedule. So I ended up trying um, another therapist, but it wasn't until probably about eight to 12 months later. And um, that experience was okay. She was 45 minutes from my house, so it, I literally had to want to go to get there. Um, and I just didn't feel like it was what I expected it to be in terms of um, just the experience. And so it wasn't until three or four therapists later, and actually I would even say probably 2000. 19 where I, I got consistent and I was just like, you know what, <laughs> the therapist doesn't matter. Maybe the common denominator is me and I just need to be consistent. So I started going consistently for about a year in 2019 and I found it to be helpful. Um, I felt like it was honestly just a place to vent, but I didn't necessarily feel like there was a lot of change going on. Um, and then actually I would say that 2020 was a year when everything really kind of drastically changed for me because we couldn't go anywhere, right? So I actually started seeing a virtual therapist, and it was one of the best decisions I've made, and I, I'm, I continue to do virtual therapy. Um, and it was the first time that I felt like anyone showed me, or any therapist showed me empathy. Um, I kind of just gave her a brief synopsis, and the first thing she said was, I'm sorry. And no one had ever said that to me about any of the things that I've gone through. Um, and so for me, this is kind of like a sigh of relief. And I just started crying because I was like, oh, my God, like somebody else cares. Um, so it was, yeah, this kind of great awakening moment where she began to walk with me through my life and kind of show me, kind of unturn some stones and say, hey, like you may have thought this was normal, but you were actually, that was actually trauma. Um, or you know, you may think that, you know, you're, you're not, you're, you're failing at life, but what's really happening is that you're, you've been living in survival mode and you didn't know it. And so getting these realizations that, wow, like I've been living in survival mode, like there's something better than this and it doesn't have to be this way um, was kind of the beginning of a, a huge kind of Oprah aha moment for me where it's like, hmm, like my life can be different and I can make the choices and decisions to, to change it. And even though, you know, the my past is my past, um, I can still learn from it and um, revisit even painful memories or painful times and start to draw out the pearls in terms of, you know, what I've learned and how that shaped my life and how other people have shaped my life and how I can move forward um, with this information. So that's kind of where I am now. Well, that's a healthy perspective that you have. And it's, you know, going to therapy, yes, it doesn't have the stigma that it had 20 years ago. <clears throat> I was, that was a similar, where I grew up, you didn't talk about, nobody talked about crazy stuff like that. Hmm. My theory is every house has a story and everybody's got something. Everybody's got some challenge that, that they have to go through. That's just part of the, this journey called life, you know? Right. So um, it sounds like you're in a very healthy place. Thank you. Yeah, I, I definitely feel much, much better than I used to. And I, I think it was all necessary, though, you know, stepping stones to where I am now. But I did have a question. You mentioned that um, you, uh, your, that your wife went to Brigham Young University. So are you both Mormon? Yes. Got it. And so I guess what's, what was your journey in terms of just uh, Mormonism? Is it something that you um, grew up in? Or is it something that you chose? Like, what was your, your journey there? No, I... Uh... I had no, I was raised with nothing, no religion, no faith at all. Um, I, I lived, like my intro says, out in the middle of nowhere. So mm -hmm. I could literally see every star in the galaxy every night. That's and awesome. I always would see that and just think there's got, there's got to be something bigger, better. I don't know. Yeah. It, it just make, it makes no sense if there's not. And so um, all... When I, when I graduated high school, all the schools that I applied to rejected me except for Utah State. Hmm. And I, I went there because a family member had gone there um, for the same thing I started school in. So that's why I went. And, and then I, 
I had heard of Mormons, you know, we're called, you know, it's the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but of course there's the nickname Mormon that's been around for a hundred years. Right. Um, and then I moved there and I'm like, Oh, this is, this is who these, these folks are. And I wasn't really interested in it. Um, didn't really know I was looking for it really until I found it, but I wasn't really interested in changing, you know, my lifestyle too much. But um, there were people who, who truly followed, you know, the, the, the commandment, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and just accepted me for who I was. And, and, and then there were some that wanted to fix me because I was broken. And of course I, I resisted that and pushed back on that, but I just prayed about it. I was meeting with, you know, the missionaries and, and, and just learning about the gospel itself. And, and then I just prayed one day and I got an answer that was so powerful that I could not deny. And so that's what, you know, led me into the, the club. I, I call it the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's been 26 years now. So yeah, basically half my life I've been in and my, and my wife was also, she joined when she was 14 in England and she like say she had mm. she had no dad she had a crazy mom literally who just mentally and emotionally abusive to her and so it was and she lived in you know what would be considered the projects of her town called Scunthorpe and so she had nothing and living with her grandmother and mom was in and out and so it it sort of saved her life and her from her perspective and so so here we are living in the motherland i guess as you call it you know utah (laughs) but so it's been good it's been it's been the hardest decision i've ever made but one of the best decisions i've made just taught me so many things that i don't know if i would have learned otherwise just about how to be a better Mm -hmm. human just you know following christ you know Mm -hmm. the gospel so far as i understand it and Mm -hmm. it just helps me and I just I just basically follow the second commandment love your neighbor as yourself that's how I try to pursue life he didn't say save your neighbor fix your neighbor you know put them on a personal service project list he said love them and I try to do that with everybody and it makes it easier because I don't feel like I have to make a hard sale when I'm talking (laughs) you gotta believe what I believe just because I believe it yeah it doesn't work and people try to do that to me when I first moved here they you know, we'll fix you because you're broken. Well, that doesn't, mm. that's, not, that's not what Jesus did. Yeah. He said, he said, he loved people and he said, follow me, you know, hang out, see if, test what I'm telling you. If it doesn't work, move on. You have a choice. Right. So that's, that's our kind of our journey on that, down that road. Um, and so I do, I do want to know, um, who has been the most influential person in your life and um, what do they teach you? As weird as it sounds, I would say my, my dad, um, Mm -hmm. you know, again, he did the best he could with what he had. Um, He just taught me if you're going to do anything, do it right or don't do it at all. Mm. And that's, that's, that's pretty much it. You know, don't. And it, and I find that, it's, it's been a blessing and a curse sometimes because if I'm doing projects around my house or something, I just want to just knock it out and get it done. But I know unless I do it right, I'll be doing it again. So I spend right. extra time <laughs> and, and it's even, we were building a house one time and he, we were re, rebuilding a floor of his old house that we were sewing back together. And, and we, it, it, this thing could have withstand, the engineering was phenomenal. And I said, dad, no one's going to see this. He says, I will know, I will know if that's wrong. And that's, yeah. so that's just kind of stuck with me. And I, so I've tried to just not do anything half-assed when I do anything, mm-hmm. try to do it, try to be all present and all there. You know, I suck sometimes, but that's always lingering. What would dad do? What would dad say? You know, so how about you? Who's, who's been the most influential in your world? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting that your dad said that my, so mine is my grandmother, and one of the things she used to say to us was, uh, no matter the task, great or small, do it well or not at all. Um, And uh, she 
So my grandmother, she passed away actually um, in August um, at the age of 96. So she lived a long, good life. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we, maybe, yeah. Maybe we'll all be so lucky. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I, my nickname for her was 1924. That's when she was born. So. <laughs> yeah, That's it's cool. like a whole, literally a whole different world. Um, yeah. But no, she was definitely um, has been the most influential person in my life. Um, she, so we were homeschooled uh, until eighth grade, and so she lived with us, and so I spent a lot of time with her, um, and just watching her. And she was a nurse, and so she loved what she did, and so just this idea of doing something that you love to do and doing it well was definitely something that she. Um, taught me just through example. She never said it besides that little little uh, anecdote she would say, but she she was always helping people. Um, she loved to volunteer. She loved to work with the Red Cross. She loved to, uh, at family gatherings, it was very, very likely that you would get your blood pressure taken. So <laughs> she was very much into um, health and wellness and 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 sharing that knowledge and information with her family. I remember um, when my brother, oldest brother, was in college. It was the joke of the of the semester was always him bringing his friends home, and she would give them condoms and talk to them about safe sex. So very embarrassing. <laughs> very embarrassing. From a grandma. Class. Like, yes, this is grandma. <laughs> so, yeah, she would do stuff like that, and we would just think it was so funny. Um, but yeah, like she she was just a really caring person and really just again was uh the 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 personification of of you know, help and care for your neighbor and, and if you can help someone else you should. And so um but she began she also was a uh, breast cancer survivor and um her husband passed away before she did as well as um, two of her daughters and just seeing her strength throughout the years um, and how she's kind of held it together and still continued to live life and live it well was just inspiration to me and I would say in her last probably 10 years um, she had dementia and so it began to kind of change the person I knew um, and the person that she was in reality um, because of dementia and so even through that process of feeling like I was kind of taking care of a stranger. Um, she still taught me something through that process of what love really means. It doesn't mean that um, it's always reciprocated the way you think it should be reciprocated. Sometimes love is the choice to make that says, you know what, I don't care what happens, I don't care what you say, you know, I don't care what, what takes place as a result of the condition that you have, but I'm going to continue to treat you the same because you're still my grandmother. And so just, just that lesson, so many lessons that I feel like she's taught me. And even um, when she came home in her last two weeks on hospice, um, home hospice, she kind of seemed to kind of return back to that person she was before the dementia got really bad. And just very, um, it seemed like two different people. When she had dementia, she had, she's very um, angry a lot and very agitated. And so, in her last two weeks, she was the exact opposite, very calm and very um, soft-spoken. And she would ask questions um, like, you know, like, how do I get there? And we would all be like, what do you mean? Like, you know, like, how do you get where? And she would be talking about heaven and just um, different person, but again, just teaching me through even that experience that um, the importance of again like making a choice to take care of people and to love them through um, the ups and downs of life because that person was still in there you know even when the dementia had her uh, appearing to be like a whole different person that that person was still in there and so just that idea again that um, love is unconditional and that um, we should take pride in our work and that helping people is like one of the best things you can do. Um, definitely makes her like one of the most influential people in my life, for sure. She sounds like an amazing woman. Thank you. And it sounds Thank like you. you'll probably become one as well because of the things you learn from her. Not Thank that you, you. I'm trying to. <laughs> 
it's uh it's a process <laughs> but i i'm learning it and i think one thing that kind of stepping back from the personal relationship she taught me was just about my preparation for when i become older um so i at the time was caregiving for both her and my mother at the same time because my mother had also been diagnosed with breast cancer thank god that that's been removed but at the time, she was recovering from her surgery, and she had also broken her ankle in three places. So <laughs> there was a lot going on, um, and I was a I was a caregiver for both of them at the same time. Um, and so that process taught me a lot about planning. And I, and my grandmother did do her her part in, in making sure that you know, like she would have what she needed in her old age. But even even that wasn't really enough and so just thinking about my own life and about my parents who are starting to get older and they're in their mid to late 60s so just beginning to think about planning and how I as much as I I loved taking care of my grandmother and my mother like it was stressful (laughs) because I was still working 40 hours a week and trying to be as present as I possibly could and this all kind of was happening in the midst of the pandemic and so wanting to be able to make sure that I set my kids up or set myself up in such a way that that burden of feeling like you have to be all things to all people when you're you don't even acknowledge your own needs is something that I want to make sure that in my planning financially and even in my will and all these good things that I am making sure that you know my family is well taken care of in terms of um, having what they need to take care of me um, and so that's something that I've been learning through this process. Yeah, that's, that's, that's quite an enormous battle or, you know, what you've done to taking care of two people and going to, you know, you said going to school, the same, and working, that's intense. Mm-hmm. Um, caregiving is, I've never had to do it. I've seen my dad do it with three of his wives and it's, a takes a toll. And so you should get some kind of sainthood or something for what you've done, probably. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I think it's a, it, was a, it was a great learning opportunity, um, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, so, disturbing. Oh, go ahead. No, mm-hmm. I'm done. Oh, <laughs> no, I was just going to ask another question. Um, so um, – in your own words, how would you describe your personal political views? Jeez, jacked up. I don't know. All over the place. <laughs> the more I, the older I get, um, it's interesting how political views are so dominant in our culture right now. Yeah. Um, I came. Here, I'll give you some background. I came from a very extremely conservative county in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And and then I moved to Utah, which is very conservative. And then, so I've been around that mentality and consumed from the conservative trough basically my whole life, which I think a lot of us do wherever we were, however we're raised. We that's what you're feeding from. That's what you know. Mm-hmm. That's what's comfortable. And that's what your family did. And that's what Uncle Joe did and blah, blah, blah. Everybody did the same thing and we're thinking the same way. And I think that's some of the problems with how we are right now. And I I know, I think social media has been a a phenomenal tool in, in like, like introspection, I guess. Because yes, I've had these certain values my whole life. And then I started to get exposed to people who didn't, you know, had very different ones. And it would always, someone would say something and, and I would just immediately dig my heels in and my, and I would feel angst in my soul. And I always wondered, because it, it almost felt like a personal attack. If someone disagreed with you, it felt like a personal attack, which is really stupid. But that's what it felt like. And so I would avoid people that I I knew didn't agree, which is another dumb thing. And the more I've, you know, delved into the social media and met people and and I have, in fact, I have a certain friend who's, he calls himself the liberal atheist geek. And, (laughs) And he's very articulate and 
we got into some battles around, I think it was pre Obama. And, but I always noticed that he was, he wasn't a bomb thrower, like a left wing bomb thrower. He was very respectful. So I never unfriended him. I kept him on all the time because I knew whatever I said or posted, he would chime in and say something about it. And after a while, I'm like, okay, just his perspective is helping me understand why I have this perspectives I have. And it helps me either question or solidify my own beliefs. And I finally had him on my podcast and just said, what is it about this digging in when someone challenges us, we get so angst about it and we feel like it's a personal attack when it's just an idea. It's like maybe we, we can discuss an idea, but it doesn't mean we have to destroy each other, I guess. Does that make sense? Kind of. So no, I'm going, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more central centrist in my views because I realized hmm. that maybe the answers are not on one side or the other. They're in the middle. Hmm. Yeah. I, th I think that more answers are in the middle than because we're so fighting. The, the media is just feeding us garbage, no matter what side you're on every day. Right. So yeah. I'm going to pose that question back to you. <laughs> what are you no, saying I, in, I... the, in the spectrum? Yeah, no, and I appreciate your um, honesty there and sharing. Uh, so for me, um, when you were talking about being centrist, I think I'm I'm that person who I see um, I, I see I guess reasons why you know people would choose one way or the other. I I think there are some conservative views that I agree with. Um, and there are some that I don't. And then when it comes to being on the more liberal side, there are some things that I agree with and some things that I don't. And so for me, um, you know, if I could <laughs> still, I, I think that for me, if I could still, you know, vote for who I wanted to vote for and be independent, I probably would. But at the end of the day, I think for me, it's it's that kind of same mentality of there's there's some good on this side and there's some good on that side, and it's just about bringing those two things together, and you know coming to a place of agreement or coming to a place of some uh, synergy where it, it works for everybody. And I think again, there's there's views on both sides that that do that, and there's some things on both sides that also um, I think both can do away with, and so. Whenever people want to have conversations about it, I think the immediate um, conversation topic usually is it's people, right? It's like, are you are you Trump? Are you Biden? And it's like, I don't know if I'm necessarily for people. I'm just for practices, and I'm for you know like the way that how they view the world, what's their worldview, how do they view other people, how do they treat people, how do they feel about inequality or or rights for different minor, uh, marginalized groups, that's kind of what I'm more interested in than the actual person because, you know, people, we're all imperfect and we're all flawed. And so we're going to do things that you like and we're going to do things that you don't like, but it doesn't mean necessarily that the things that we're fighting for, um, that they're all wrong or, or that they're all right. And so for me, I just try to stick to, you know, what are the issues that matter to me and how can I ensure that whatever I do as an individual um, in terms of how I advocate or how I challenge the system or how I, again, support it, how what I do affects um, the larger picture of how it affects everyone else. And so for me, I would just say, yeah, like I'm kind of in the middle. Um, right now I'm, my party is, is, is Democrat, but Again, for me, there are some things that I agree with that Republicans believe. There are some things that I disagree with that Republicans believe. But the same is, can be true even as a Democrat. There's things that I definitely believe and support, but there's other things that I don't. And so for me, it's just about what really lines up with my, world, my Christian worldview and how do I do my part to support what I believe in. So that's pretty much it. Got it. Well, we have about five minutes left. Um, but I think we just need to treat each other as humans, and and I, 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 my my base conversation with people is like, look, the media is feeding us BS on both sides, so it's just yeah, <laughs> just you got to just sift through the BS and and try to find out what's true, even 
And even then, how do you know if it's accurate? How do you know what you're being fed is right? But I, that's what, if we just, again, treat each other as humans and realize that everyone has their views because of certain life experiences they've had. And if we would just be take five minutes and be interested in somebody, then we would break down those barriers. And it's easy to hide behind the social media and our laptops and our phones and say, well, you're a jerk and you don't have, there's no consequences for it. But if I'm standing, if you're standing in front of me, I'm less likely to call you a jerk than if you're behind a screen because right. you're a human, you're a person. And I'm not, you know, you're going to see like say the humanity in each other. And we, we tend to, just want to destroy and i've i've had conservative friends turn on me because i i called out two guys for bashing on each other a conservative and a liberal and i said guys you're both good guys why don't you just try to learn from each other and stop being such jerks to each other and my conservative yeah. friend turned on me and said you've just been brainwashed by the left well that's stupid <laughs> so we just got to be kind again it come back, comes back comes back to the second commandment is loving your neighbor as yourself really right that's, that's exactly my, my theory so <laughs> so thank i've i've okay. appreciated you talking with you and getting to know you and i would love to have you on my own little podcast if you're willing and able sure that would be fun <laughs> i always think it's great to have conversations and i've enjoyed this time speaking with you as well and i figured if you signed up that you were into story and into dialogue and conversations. I really appreciate that. I did want to ask you, though, before we go, and I'm, I'm totally fine with exchanging information, so just let me know the best way to do that. But um, is there anything that you learned about me today that surprised you, or you know, who, was I who you expected me to be? Based on your, your little bio, uh, I wasn't surprised by anything, no, for some reason. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but I wasn't. Yeah. How about you? Surprise? Um, I think what always surprises me is the background stories that align. So, again, just, you know, being having conversations about our fathers and also, again, the, the idea that, you know, your dad believed in you do something right the first time you do it and how my grandmother um, also was a, was a proponent of that. I, I feel like that's really cool. So I just I love how, again, there's this, always this this kind of, back-end network of experiences or beliefs or practices that we all don't know that we have in common, but we actually do. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Again, more alike than just, than, than not alike. We exactly. That <laughs> We're all trying to get yeah. through this crazy life without killing each other and making a mess as we go. Exactly. We're all trying to do the best we can with what we have, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and that softens, that softens things up, I think. Thank you again for listening to the Parish to Thought show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Parish to Thought show.